Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, uh, my co-host today is our friend Hugo Lindgren. So, Hugo, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Um, it was a big week last week. Uh, Tusk Philanthropies announced its uh, $10 million grant program for mobile voting. You want to talk about that just at the top here? Yeah, sure. Um, so we announced that we are uh, providing the funding to build new mobile voting technology that uh, we think will be the most secure technology for voting that's ever been built. Uh, we are working with uh, lots of different cybersecurity experts and cryptologists and academics, many of whom were critics of what we've been doing in the past because they felt like we weren't um, you know, doing enough on security. And so uh, we ran an RFP program last year, uh, picked two companies, uh, Assembly Voting and OSET, which is the uh, Open Source Election Technology Consortium. Uh, to build this, uh, there's a working group at Berkeley led by Secretary Janet Napolitano, uh, who ran Homeland Security, of different cybersecurity experts to give guidance as to what should be built. Um, they will build uh, in accordance with that. Uh, and when we're done in a year or so, we'll see how long it takes. Uh, we'll make it open source to everyone. And, you know, I think at least be in a position to provide uh, a solution uh, to mobile voting that's really secure. So this is uh, using the blockchain, correct? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's, there are different technological ways to do it. And, and the truth is I'm not providing any, um, really any direction in the sense of I'm agnostic, right? Wh- whatever ultimately gets it done uh, is fine with me. So it might not be the blockchain. There's other approaches Correct. that we're exploring. Okay, that's interesting. I thought I thought the blockchain was a was a like a, a set in stone kind of piece of the whole thing, but I, I, I I'm, I'm obviously incorrect. Um, well, next week we're going to have uh, Jocelyn Bucaro, who is overseeing the initiative for Tusk Philanthropies, on the show um, to talk more in depth about it. So definitely tune in next week. Yeah, we'll talk about it next week. Sure. Um, but I did want to get your initial thoughts on it since the news is. Um, is uh, just fresh, hot off the hot off the presses. Although I guess they don't really say that anymore, do they? Breaking uh, news! Breaking news! There you go. Um, well, here are some things we're going to be talking about, which probably will lead us back to some sort of at least mention of, of mobile voting. But um, what we do typically over the weekend before these things is Bradley and I exchange kind of news stories about various things. And uh, one of the first things Bradley sent me was a, a, a Washington Post story about a a new poll about uh, sort of where Americans are politically. Um, it was a pretty grim picture. Uh, more than 75% of each party thinks the other party is out to destroy them. Um, and 70% think uh, extreme voices on the other side should be should be censored. Bradley, what did you make of, of these findings? Uh, were they surprising, at least in the the, the overall numbers? or, or did it- No, not, not at all. Uh, I think that it is... Uh, a very clear confirmation of what we already know, which is the politics of this country has gotten so divisive uh, and, and so bad um, that literally no one even thinks that they should work with the other side or, or trust the other side at all. Uh, and it has become, uh, you know, interestingly, even though very few people participate in the actual political process in terms of voting for in most primaries and in most elections, everyone seems to at least have some sort of tribe that they belong to. Uh, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, or I hate them all. Um, and uh, they feel very, very strongly about it. So, you know, when you see that more than 75% of people in each party think the other party's out to destroy them and that those voices should, on the other side should be censored, you know, I, I think we're at a point where we can acknowledge 
Our politics are broken. The fact that even the Democrats running Congress in the White House can't get infrastructure and the spending bill done on their own, let alone even dealing with Republicans. That's not even an afterthought for them. Uh, It just tells you that we're at the point where the system is broken and you do have to start to wonder, and that that Washington Post piece did mention this, um, whether there's a point where the country doesn't stay together, right? There is a, a point where you say our differences are so irreconcilable and the things that we believe in are so oppositional, you know, that ultimately, rather than just being in this constant state of, of fighting and ineptness and unhappiness, uh, it's probably a lot like a marriage, um, we would be better off on our own, right? I hate to even play this out, but if you were going to if you're going to think about how, like, what would be the first step, do you think, of the United States, like, coming apart? Would it be Texas, like declaring itself a sovereign nation? Is it California? Yeah, look, I mean, I I think what you would see are advocates to secede from the union uh, that are not only coming from cranks, but start to get endorsed by mainstream people, by current elected officials, former elected officials, academics, serious journalists, things like that. Um, And that starts to all of a sudden Give, give some credence to it. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to think about, you know, who goes first, it's funny, you can make a case for why every region might be the craziest, actually. Um, but, you know, uh, Texas may... You think New England, New England could be the craziest? I think in a weird way, they have this sort of live free or die ethos that like a Vermont or New Hampshire kind of makes kind of right. makes sense. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll say, it seems more likely to be someone kind of on a border... Than, than in the middle, but um, but nonetheless, yeah, there, there's a world where you could see people reaching a lot of conclusions this country shouldn't stay together. And look, that's why I'm doing mobile voting, because I believe that if we don't do something that radically changes primary turnout, that, that moves all the incentives towards the middle, towards uh, compromise, towards conciliation, towards getting stuff done, then this is where we're headed, right? And if we want to remain as one union and one country, um, we've got to have a functional government, which means passing bills, which we really can't do in a current system where every district is gerrymandered. And primary turnout on average is 10 to 15 percent. And those are the most kind of ideological people on, on both sides. And as a result, you know, the only incentive for politicians is to get nothing done. And they're doing that while making the rest of the country absolutely miserable. Do you see any evidence of this in your own like personal life? I mean, you, you know, Democrats and Republicans. Do you, and you're not the kind of person to get in sort of big political arguments with your friends, but but do you see um, a sort of lack of tolerance expressed, you know, among people you know, or is this just yeah. like something that's happening kind of out there? No, I think, look, I think the people that I know tend to be a little more centrist in nature. Right. Uh, because people who are incredibly ideological and self-righteous, like I just don't, they're not fun to be around, Right. So I, I tend to avoid that crowd anyway. Um, but but yeah, absolutely. I think you have family members who are not centrist, though. Is that correct? Oh, my daughter. Yeah, but she's fifteen. So <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I, I will. Be, she's be, taking debating classes, though, right? She's on the debate she's team. On the debate team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's. But what I like about the debate system they have there is they don't get to choose what side they're on. Oh right, um, right. They get assigned. They, they're told the topic. They're told their side. They have fifteen minutes, I think, to do some basic research, and that's it. So I, I think in a weird way, it may actually show her that there are two sides to a lot of different arguments um, and, and not just one right and one wrong. 
answer. I bet you see them like flip Tucker Carlson and make him argue like a completely different thing and just see how. I bet he'd be that great. Be at so it, amazing if you said like, okay, we're gonna trade places. And everyone on MSNBC, you're going on Fox for a month, right? And everyone on Fox, you're on MSNBC, and you've got to make the audience like you. Um, I'm sure they'd be fine at it. They'd all be great at it. <laughs> they would probably adapt just fine. It would take them a little bit of time, but they would adapt just fine. Because look, just like how politicians want to stay in office ahead of any substantive issue, any policy issue, any anything, um, the, the same thing holds true for a lot of people in media. Which is what do you mean? A lot of people, of course, everyone. I mean, I, I think the the yes, they. I mean, any any host of an MSNBC show, they, they want to stay on the air above all else, you know. Yeah. So you know, same same thing. Which is the incentives are to do whatever it takes to stay in the job, uh, and and that that would be kind of fun to switch that. Um, so- I guess this is sort of a chicken and egg question, but it, it, is is the Biden administration's problem simply the result of this like this environment, or is it helping create the environment? It's it's both, right? I mean, I think the notion of once Trump was gone, everything would be fine was uh, an unrealistic notion. Trump obviously drove a tremendous amount of negativity, and he still does to some extent. But you know. The system was kind of falling apart, you know, long before Donald Trump got there. I mean, Barack Obama was elected as this transformative kind of post-political president who, who could really kind of bring everyone together. He passed one meaningful bill, health care, with solely Democratic support, never really passed anything that meaningful again, right? And, and this was someone who was not super partisan and not super ideological and reasonable. He kind of was the things you would think someone would need to be to be effective. And yet, generally speaking, he couldn't do that much. Right. So I, I, I think it's been this way for a while. I just think that the Internet takes everything and puts it on steroids. And so whatever was existing, say, in the Clinton administration that got a lot of mainstream media coverage was then twice as intense in the Obama administration um, because of, say, Facebook and, and a couple of platforms that today is twice as intense because now there's 25 different platforms and people are spending 10 times more of their time on each platform than they used to. So it just keeps getting worse. Yeah, it's just, it, I mean, it, it's like you were saying about Gavin Newsom the last few weeks, though. I mean, um, I just don't understand how, why people take it all that seriously all the time. You know, why the sort of Twitter and Facebook mobs are are so powerful uh, in Washington and, and in, you know, state houses around the country. Like, like this is not, this is not the people. This is just some little slice of the people. But, but that's kind of how they wanted it, I think, right? So, so a lot of Twitter is dominated by journalists, right? These are people, like we just said, who are desperate to be somebody, desperate for attention, desperate for recognition. And the reality is, with all the respect to them, their job is to talk about what other people do, not what they do, Right. And so they want to move the attention to themselves as much as possible because the height of journalistic success would be having a show on Fox or MSNBC or something like that, right? So those are the people who make the most money and kind of have the the, the biggest followings. So, you know, almost by definition, all of the people who kind of are within the political system care desperately about what everyone else says about you. And there's no more immediate feedback loop than Twitter. And so the reason why it is so powerful in Washington and state legislatures, city councils and all of that is if all of the members, all of the staffers, all of the reporters, you know, all of the people in the system uh, are on it constantly, then that becomes their echo chamber. And that's what they hear and that's what they feel. And on one hand, no, Twitter is not reflective of the population as a whole and the voters as a whole. But on the other hand, I think when it comes to influencing 
legislation and policy and kind of the, the narrative around all that, um, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Do you think Biden has any chance of pulling out the sort of larger piece of the spending plan, the 3.5? Yeah, I, I, I do only because part of me still thinks the notion that progressives would, at the end of the day, choose to have nothing as opposed to a billion and a half dollars, a trillion and a half dollars of things that they really care about, that no one's that stupid, right? And you would, trillion and a half is a lot of money. Uh, and if you look at kind of what they've been saying over the last day or so, where they're talking about how do they reduce the, um, the cost of the bill, a, a lot of it is just taking the time that they allocated to, you know, funding for this program for childcare or whatever it is for 10 years, and they'll cut it in half to five years, cut the cost of the bill in half, um, and then kind of assume that once they create it, they can never really get it, it won't be gotten rid of anyway. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think it'll happen. And I hope it does, because I think that I don't, well, I don't necessarily agree with every idea in the spending bill or, or every revenue measure to pay for it. Um, I, I do think overall, these are, you know, there are some transformative pieces in there, like you know, one thing that I know personally because we work on it is childhood hunger. You know, out of our foundation, uh, we fund and run campaigns all over the country to mandate things like universal school breakfast, universal school lunch. Uh, there's a provision in the federal bill right now that would allocate $33 billion over the next 10 years to states to provide universal school breakfast and lunch. Uh, and we're lobbying very hard to keep that in the bill because if that happens, I think we're then in a position to go implement it in pretty much every single state. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that's really good and meaningful. And so my, my hope is just that, that at the end of the day, Democrats aren't stupid enough to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But if you say the beginning of this conversation, uh, it would imply that they very much are. Do you think the Democrats are still sort of tweaked by Trump? I mean, is his presence, even in somewhat muted form, still a, a, a major sort of shadow over like what the Democrats are doing? Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, a lot of PTSD. And look, the Trump administration is still not that long ago. And January 6th is not that long ago. I think people still feel all of that. At the same time, they've also taken a lot of their cues from Trump, right? So like, arguably, all of the infighting and trashing each other in every way possible publicly um, and kind of any lack of respect or civility or decency, um, you know, is very much right out of the Trump playbook. Are you talking about you talking about the Democrats? You mean the fight? Yeah, especially the far, far left, the squad, you know, that everyone who doesn't agree with them on every issue is therefore inherently evil right. because they're impure. Um, that's Trumpism. It's, it's Trumpism by another name, but it's still Trumpism. Um, you sent me uh, some poll numbers for Governor Abbott in Texas that don't look too good. Uh, voters believe by a margin of 51 to 42 that he does not deserve to be reelected. Um, what do you think is going to go on with that in Texas? Yeah, so this, the reason I to was less around like, hey, let's talk about Texas politics. And more around the point is it just reinforced what we're discussing, which is the voters are unhappy, right? And they are unhappy on the left and in the middle and on the right. They're unhappy in Texas. They're unhappy in New York. They're unhappy in California. They're unhappy in big states. They're unhappy in small states. People are unhappy because they want a government that they think is somewhat functional and is supposed to be able to look out for their interests. And we don't have that, right? And you know, part of the reason that people sort of constantly feel frustrated is someone runs for office promising to be different and transformative. And then, of course, they never are. Uh, and they don't get that much done. And therefore, they're that much more disappointed. Uh, but look, with Biden, we have a, someone running for president promising to be as regular as possible. And they don't like him either. <laughs> um, I just think we're in a world where 
people are incredibly unhappy. So the risk of something like um, the union not remaining the union is greater than people might think it is, and that we're that should take it more seriously than they do. Um, number one, and number two, even when you play pure partisan-based politics like Abbott is doing in Texas with things like like guns and abortion, um, it's still not working out that well for him. Uh, I would still bet on him to get reelected. I think the Republican, you know, Democrats have been talking about in the New York Times forever. Oh, Texas is purple and it's turning blue, and it, that never actually happens. So I don't think Beto O'Rourke or Matthew McConaughey are likely to be the next governor of Texas. But at the same time, I, I Bradley, I, I don't want you to, to dismiss Matthew McConaughey that quickly. I, I really think I think it, it would just be cool for the rest of us. I don't know about Texas, but I think it'd be cool for the rest of us if Matthew McConaughey were a governor. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm curious what you think in, in this environment. What 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 can a Hollywood star do to get elected? How do you how do you leverage that? All right, all right, all right. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, what kind of app can you create? I, I want, I want the, I want that Bradley magic, like when you when you put the little button on the on the Uber yeah, app. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty rare when an independent was. Here's the problem. I remember it's taking it more seriously in 2009 when I ran my. Bloomberg's re-election campaign. He was an independent at that time. He had left right. the Republican Party. And the, his truest nature was as an independent, right? And right. yet we ended up running as both an independent as a Republican and a Republican because the masters didn't add up. You know, 45% of the voters would be for the Democratic nominee, no matter who it was, whether it was you or me or anyone walking by in the street right now. <laughs> and you had not a huge number, but call it 10 to 15% that we're going to vote for the Republican nominee, no matter who it was. It just didn't leave you enough votes, right? Um, and so that math, I think, is still basically true, which means there are times where it happens. And look, Jesse Ventura won in Minnesota as an independent and a celebrity. So it can happen from time to time. Um, but I also think that part of the challenge for, McC for McConaughey is, you know, Beto is um, in some ways a pretty talented politician, and he's yeah. not Abbott on the left, Right. Um, he he kind of is idiosyncratic and he's not just a creature of the progressive. So if you had a world where the equivalent of, of Greg Abbott were running on the left, so if it was a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren were the Democratic nominee for governor of Texas and Abbott were the Republican nominee, you might say that they both alienate so many voters in the middle that someone could come take that. But I think that that, that dynamic doesn't really exist because I don't think that that's a uh, – uh, I don't. I don't think that that's who Beto is. Were you surprised he was such a flop as a presidential candidate? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that sometimes look, Beto. Beto and this is not a nice thing that I'm about to say, but it's like a mediocre white guy, right? Um, <laughs> he is someone who like had a lot of things. Hey, wasn't it all mediocre? Mediocre white guys running? I mean, pretty much. But I think in in his case. He was a mediocre white guy who was able to use kind of some charisma and some family connections and whatever else to become a congressman from El Paso. Fine. You're one of 435. Then kind of picked the exact person, right person to run against him, Ted Cruz. Then ran a really great campaign to his great credit and came close, but still lost to the most loathsome person pretty much in American politics. Um, <laughs> I think he kind of caught lightning in a bottle, even though he still lost to some extent in that 2018 Senate run. And it just wasn't replicable. And I think that's why he didn't win or even even become a serious candidate in 2020 presidential. And that's why I'm not really sure that he's going to be Greg Abbott in 2022 in Texas. Either. In that Texas poll, it was pretty interesting that only 37 percent of voters approve of Abbott on the abortion issue. Um, that seemed that seemed to present some 
difficulties for him in a general election anyway. Well, um, I guess the real question is, is that other 63% do they disapprove or is it, you know, people who uh, aren't sure or are, the, the no, other, no, there's a big not sure component there. I can't remember what it is, but it, but it's, it's not 63 to 37. Yeah, but abortion's always been that way, right? Which is you have a, a, a strong minority of people who are adamantly pro-choice no matter what, a strong minority of people who are adamantly pro-life no matter what. And then a lot of people more who lean towards pro-choice than pro-life, which is why abortion has been legal for the last 50 years. Right. 50 years. But, you know, the reason why you see legislation with various restrictions is, you know, a lot of people in the middle are not entirely sure how they feel about it or entirely sure when life begins or when a pregnancy should be allowed to end or anything else. And so 37% of the hardcore right to life, abortion is wrong in all cases, no matter what, that, that actually sounds about right to me. Let's talk about your own business for a second. You were, you were, we were talking this morning and you were mentioning a, uh, a bunch of messages in a, in a text group that you're in that's sort of all political consultants in the city, peers and friends. Um, and I guess the discussion was about how a, a, a sort of a certain client had 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 been recently picked up by someone in the business who was, you know, kind of unsavory, someone with a bad reputation. Um, and everybody was talking about how uh, I gather like they, a couple of people had passed on it. They thought it was a bad idea to to, to go to work with him. Um, you know, this isn't like a, a master criminal, not an arms dealer or a, you know, a drug dealer or something, but just somebody who's, you know, got a got a couple of black marks on them in the in the public sphere. You had some thoughts about how that is sort of represents kind of a different uh, a different viewpoint um, in emerging in the in the yeah. What, what kind of hit me in that argument was because um, someone had had said in the text, oh well, you know this this other consultant he'll he'll get some press out of it and that'll be good for his business. It'll be a loss leader, right? right. And sort of thinking about the notion of loss leaders at, le- at least in consulting businesses, and, and I think the world has changed on that. There was certainly a, for a long time. The belief of all press is good press, ink is ink, as long as they spell your name correctly, doesn't matter what else they say, and all those other cliches, right? And I think the thought was, if they're talking about you, that means people know who you are and they're paying attention, which means when they're then hiring someone, they're more likely to choose you. And I don't think that that's entirely wrong, but I think that the world has changed in some meaningful ways, and that adage is no longer inherently true. Um, I think all the same factors that we were just talking about as opposed to why politics and media have kind of fallen so far um, in this country, you know, apply here as well. I think now that you live in a world where every choice you make is not only effectively memorialized online in some way, um, but then is not only taken apart, but ultimately, you know, people feel very comfortable passing judgment on it without taking any time to actually understand what you did do or didn't do, whether it was good or bad or different or anything else, um, all means that, you know, I guess when it was sort of your name getting flashed in a newspaper story or in a TV hit, that kind of had value. But if there's a sustained Twitter campaign against something that you've done, and then you think about kind of the mid-level corporate execs that tend to hire consulting firms, whether it's a McKinsey or a consulting firm or a PR firm or whatever it is, the main thing that the corporate exec wants is to not get in, be blamed if the consultant screws up. So there was always this notion of, you know, you hire McKinsey because it's the best CYA mechanism because who could ever fault you for hiring the gold standard? Um, right, right. Today, McKinsey has taken a shit ton of bad press in the Times and other places. I don't think it provides any protection anymore to, to hire McKinsey. Um, and I, I think to a certain extent, you know, that same thing is true uh, 
uh, on, on a lot of different fronts. And that's even true for that kind of mid-level corporate executive who says, look, you know what? So-and-so consultant might be the right person to help me achieve A, B, and C. Um, but all these groups on the right or the left or wherever it is hate them and they get beat up a lot. And, you know, that means there's more risk than I need. Uh, right. So, you know, I, I, I just think that the, the calculus is changing. And um, if you are a consultant of some kind, you're listening to this, I think how you pick your clients requires a little more care than it used to because, A, there's a question of, you know, do you need the revenue and can the revenue help you? That's always the number one factor. But then number two. Um, What's the reputational risk? You know, is the reputation risk now greater than it was worth? Whereas before, the assumption was if you were getting attention, it, it was it was more value creative than that. Right, right. Um, let's talk about a couple of movies um, quickly before we go here. Um, you watched both the Tammy Faye Baker movie and part of the Many Saints of Newark. Yes. The I, watched, I watched the whole Tammy Faye Baker movie uh, and I watched maybe the first 45 minutes of the Many Saints of Newark. So um, I, I like the Tammy Faye movie. I actually saw it in the movie theater. Um, it was me, Harper, and one other person. How much of that do you think is COVID and how much of that is the movie? Uh, some COVID, some movie, some Portland, Maine is probably a, a fun town. People have better things to do than go to the movies. Um, but uh, I thought it was pretty good. I, mean, I find the whole televangelist concept fascinating because if you think about it, they're like politicians on steroids, right? Yeah, you know, totally. the ones who really succeed are much better at the same skill set than politicians are by and large, right? Um, or you could look at a guy like Donald Trump and say, in many ways, he is a television. Right. Yeah, no, he, he definitely adopted a lot of their methods. Yeah, for sure. a lot of their tactics. And so kind of watching how it all unfolded for, for Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, I thought was was really interesting. Um, and also it's to see- It's not kind of gross to be in their company, like in the movie. That's what it would be my concern. I think so. But I think the other thing, and maybe I'm, I'm, I was being a little more sympathetic than they deserve, but you see the series of choices they made. A lot of those choices were clearly morally wrong, and they both could have and should have known better and acted differently. However, with that said, each situation then leads to a new set of circumstances. And in each circumstance, you can sort of see how they thought what they were doing was at least justifiable. Maybe, maybe right is impossible, but justifiable. But look, one thing the movie did do is they painted Tammy Faye as a real advocate of LGBTQ uh, people and uh, that she was really a strong supporter of that community and that that had a lot of value. And of course, also came out that Jim Baker was gay. So... Um, you know, it, there were some redeeming functions there. But overall, I, I thought if you're interested in politics, in the same way that when you and I discussed what makes Sammy run our podcast as sort mm -hmm. of a great explanation of how a politician thinks and behaves, even though it was about a Hollywood agent, yep. um, I think this is a good a good equivalent. Uh, Many Saints of New York, only 40 minutes. It doesn't sound like you're Yeah, I think I watched it on a flight to Portland and then never felt compelled to put it back on. It just didn't, didn't grab me, didn't capture me. And I'm a super big and loyal Sopranos fan, but I felt like my obligation was therefore to give it a shot. I did. Uh, it was kind of boring. I don't know, do you watch it? Yeah, I thought it was dreary as hell. Like I, it just, it just felt so unnecessary. Like it, it, and it just didn't have the pop of the of the Sopranos at all. It felt, yeah. it felt like you were like a homework assignment. Like, oh, this is where they had the business here, and this was the uncle, and you, you had to connect all these dots and everything, and then you didn't end up really getting anything for your homework assignment. You know, you're like, I'll just take Tony Soprano 
you know. Yeah, it was a little bit like, oh, right, you know, here's how Big Pussy's origin story or whatever it was, or Silvio or Pauly. But, like, once you got done sort of, like, winking your head, the character you saw was a character that you knew from the show. Then it was like, okay, well, so what? And there was there was no there. And it was barely about Tony at all. I mean, that, that character was just kind of totally empty. I mean, it was just a strange, like, impulse, like... I don't know. It, it was it was it was just completely unnecessary and it was boring. <laughs> so two, two final recommendations, then then we'll leave because I actually have to go get a Abby's new passport. Well, I have two things I need to. I have one very important question, but go ahead. I was going to say uh, a book that I'm almost done with. That I'm really enjoying called The Barbarian Nurseries by Hector Tobar about okay. class and race in LA. It's a novel, really good. And okay. I had, I was in Portland, Maine for the first time in my life last weekend. Really good food. It's in that like. Charleston, New Orleans, Savannah, Montreal, Santa Fe, Canada. Oh, my God. New Orleans. You're putting it in New Orleans and Charleston? Yeah, I, I was really impressed with the food. Wow. Um, okay, uh, when this uh, when this podcast is being posted, the uh, that same day the Yankees are going to be playing the Red Sox in a one-game series, or it's not even a series, it's a one-game playoff. Um, as a Mets fan, who are you rooting for? Go Red Sox. Oh, shut I, up. I, I get it. I get, here's the thing. Howard and I had this debate the other day. Oh. My position is petty and jealous and vindictive. Right. In no way shows any class or grace or any quality <laughs> on my part at all. And yet, look, in 2001, where I really, really wanted to root for the Yankees, because obviously, yeah. you know, like. But wait, you're not going to say you didn't. When Luis Gonzalez hit that ball up the middle, I was jumping up and down and shooting. When the Arizona Diamondbacks beat me yes, at listen random to me. So that's the point. My my yeah. hatred for the Yankees runs so deep that I couldn't even do it when it was the morally right thing to do. You know, now yeah, it's, it's good this is coming at the end of the podcast. I think this is going to outrage you people. Edit it out, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, now, but you know, against the Red Sox, yeah. Look, by the way, I think Cole's a much better pitcher than Evaldi, and so I would. I don't. I don't bet on sports, but I would bet on the Yankees if I were. Yeah, uh, the Yankees got like one hit through eight innings yesterday, though. I don't know that. I think Evaldi is going to be as much as they can handle, but we'll see. Maybe. So we'll see. But uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for the Red Sox. All right, Bradley. See you next week. All right, see you guys. Thanks, you.